Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is January the 7th, 2020. This is episode 2575. It's Tuesday, and we are on a regularly scheduled program. Uh, we've kind of gotten back into the swing of things after the long winter break. So Tuesday is a Just Jack show. Today we're going to talk about thoughts on tactics and technology for changing the global food system. And I'll be honest, my new obsession with hydroponics is what's led me here, but this show's not really going to be specifically on hydroponics. That will be one thing that we talk about today and a lot of other technologies, including some technologies that when I first heard about them, I said, well, my God, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would you do such a thing? And being an open-minded person, and being willing to do research and subject things to the ROI on energy input and ROI on cost-benefit analysis, I've determined some of these stupid ideas are indeed stupid or really smart, depending on how they're implemented. And that's how many things are. We're going to talk about one of the things we're going to talk about today is vertical farming. Farming inside a building. Having a great big, giant, shining orb of light that we refer to as the sun providing enough energy in one, uh, like an hour that hits the earth, that if we could figure out how to harness it all, well, we could run the whole planet for a year. I don't even remember what the timeline is, but it's less than a day. Less than a day of sunlight on the planet has enough energy to run all of our needs for a year if we knew how to harvest it. And the one thing we actually know how to harvest from the sun is the actual light itself. So we have all this beautiful sunshine out there. We're going to go plug a light bulb in and grow a whole farm inside a building. I thought that was stupid. And 10 years ago, the numbers said that it was stupid. But the projections on where the numbers would go said that it wasn't. And people with lots of money were willing to take the gamble. And they've proven that it can be done in a way that makes sense for some things. Will it feed the planet? No. Man cannot live on lettuce alone. What if I told you, though... There's a guy that proved, based on projections, that it's probably going to be possible to economically viably grow and energy-wise, from a sustainability and regenerative standpoint, grow rice indoors by 2030 to 2035. I thought that was really stupid. I'm going to have to find that video for you. i got a bunch of other great videos in the show notes for you today. But I just realized when I was doing the intro, I didn't, I didn't get to that. But I, 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 still, I think that's dumb. And I'll tell you why I think that's dumb. If you want me to pick a grain, that I can come up with a system that grows grain, that is regenerative and builds soil, a rice-based system using an integrated livestock animal like ducks is the one that I can do where I can actually make everything better every year. So the one grain we can grow outside and actually really make things better without drastically changing the way things are done now in many places, not all places, but many places, especially where it's still grown traditionally, that's the one we're going to grow indoors. Well, why are we going to do it? Because you can make it grow short and fast, and you can make it work. doesn't work today, but if the projections that science agrees on stays true, by 2035, you'd be able to do it. And I still think it would be dumb for most people. But can't you see why a country that imports most of its food might invest in that type of technology just for independence and autonomy alone? I can. Does that save the planet? No. 
We have to look at other things. I know some of you are out there screaming, Jack, Jack, you founded the damn Facebook Regenerative Agriculture Group. Why are you talking about regenerative? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about four specific solutions today. And then we're going to talk about the concept of holistic solutions and how those fit together. And we're going to acknowledge there's a dozen more. And we're going to anchor it. The last one I'm going to talk about is regenerative agriculture. Because I think that if we lead there, it's going to confuse people. Because it's something people want to grab onto. And what I, my problem with this, and here's what we're going to talk about today. Growing food at home, indoor vertical farms, various methods of what we call greenhouse farming, and regenerative agriculture, which I'm defining as livestock-based perennial systems with effective water management and soil retention technologies. That's how I'm defining regenerative ag for this discussion. That's And that is the main form of true regenerative agriculture being uh, practiced out there. I would say at the other levels, it's small scale being done in backyards by building soil and gardens and things like that. And taking your... I see, I think it's very regenerative when you produce your own food and you take strain off the system because that lets there be room for more large-scale regenerative agriculture, if that makes sense. But all of this stuff has to work together. And what would happen for most situations, if you got a person who's a scientist that's really big into growing food indoors, he's going to tell you that's the solution to save the world. You get someone who's gotten really good at aquaponics, this is the solution that's going to feed the world. You get somebody who's really good at automated-based greenhouse farming using hydroponics, and it's the solution that's going to save the world. You get somebody like Mark Shepard, he's going to tell you regenerative agriculture is what's going to save the world. Or Joel Salatin, they're going to focus on grazing systems and growing grass and developing savanna-based ecosystems because it's what they know. Because something works doesn't mean that something else doesn't work. And today I want to come at this from how we could actually begin at least starting a discussion that moves us toward a holistic look at fixing the problems we have. And what I have to say leading off so that, so that we can have that discussion is the global food system we have today works. It absolutely positively works. You can't say it doesn't work or you're not being honest. Now, before you flip your shit and get triggered only six minutes into the episode, let's define what works means. I'm defining works as it meets the goals that the people in control of our system have for the global system. And I can prove that to you this way. When is the last time you had some money in your pocket, and unless you was in the middle of the woods and didn't know what you could eat in the middle of the woods, you couldn't get food? And the answer is it's never happened in your damn life. It's never. I mean, I guarantee you that 99% of the people listening to this show right now Unless it was some sort of natural disaster that cut you off. So when times are normal, you have money in your pocket and you can't get food. It has never happened to any of you in your damn life. And if it did, there was some kind of extraneous circumstance. It was not because food was not available. And guess what? In most of the world, even some of the really bad places, if you have a few, you know, few bucks in your pocket, you can go get food. It feeds the world. You know what else works? Nuclear bombs work. They work. You drop one, you get a giant mushroom cloud, a bunch of dead people, and you blow shit up. Saying something that works does not mean it's a good idea to be doing it. But it does work. And if we don't start out from the premise that the current system does feed the world, you cannot have a conversation with people that are suspicious of new technologies or the reinvention of older technologies and giving up what we have. 
Because the problem we have is, here's, here's just a small bullet point list of what the current food system that works also does. Ruins lands, causes floods, creates desert, pollutes waterways and oceans, uses massive amounts of fossil fuels, more than any other single industry in the world, destroys entire ecosystems, treats animals with cruelty that few people can ever imagine. I believe if most people that eat steak had to go to a CAFO and spend a week at a CAFO, they would either become vegetarians or go eat grass-fed animals only. They wouldn't be able to stomach eating a steak if they knew, or, or pork especially, if they knew what these animals were subjected to. And it centralizes control of commodity crops, enabling the harsh use of what we call soft power. This is why a little country that's maybe in a desert environment want to, might want to invest money into growing damn gone rice in a building. Because if you can impose sanctions on a country and cut off their food supply, well, see, we have a problem now, don't we, if we are that country. So while I don't think we can feed the world rice growing them in a building, I get why a small country especially... Without a lot of resources, might say, hey, this is one of the things we want to add to what we're doing, to at least provide some base caloric input for our people. So I get why all of these things are being considered. I want to come at them from a holistic standpoint today, and I think we'll have a really good discussion on them if we can be open-minded, and I hope we can. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Bulk Ammo. You know, here's what I know. Whenever there's talk of gun control, and that's pretty much Tuesday, every Tuesday, and every Wednesday, and every day that ends with Y, but when there's more talk than usual, the first thing that dries up isn't guns, it's ammo. It's ammo in magazines for some reason. I'm sure you can figure out why. And uh, so I try to stay stocked up on ammo at all times because I know my gun without ammo is an overpriced club. It can't do anything without ammunition to put in it. I can't train with it. I can't have fun with the damn thing. I, okay, look. I'll admit it. Sometimes I take one of my guns out and kind of just look at it and clean it, even if it's not dirty. And, you know, it's kind of fun, but not real fun. I can't put food on the table. I can't defend my family unless there's ammo to go in that weapon. So I stock up on ammo. I do it at bulkammo.com. And the reason I do it at Bulk Ammo, it's cheap, it's fast, and I don't have to deal with stupid people at stores. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Member Support Brigade. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. JM Bullion is your source of precious metals. And why? Because you should invest at least some. You know, I've been saying 5 to 10% of your net worth in silver and gold since day one of the show, and I've never changed it. But if someone said to me, Jack, I, I think five's a little too aggressive, and I want to put 1% or 2% of my net worth in silver and gold, you know what? No problem. No problem. I want to do zero. No problem. But if you're going to do any, get it from JM Bullion. Now, why? Okay, because you know all those companies that advertise on Fox News and stuff like that, they use hype and bullshit to scare you into spending your money on gold and basically prey on old people who are afraid that the, yeah, the, those companies like Lear Capital. See, Lear Capital came to me and said they want to be a sponsor. I told them to screw off because I don't market that way. I also don't want you dealing with people that market the way they do and paying more than you have to because JM Bullion costs less. And they give you free shipping. And if you're an MSB member, they give you a discount. So my question to you, instead of why should you buy from JM Bullion, is why would you buy from anybody else? Check them out today. Long-term sponsor. Been with us over seven years. They do things right, and if there is a problem, they fix it every damn time. Check them out, jmbullion.com. With that, let's get into it. I want to start out with, even though we're going to end 
with regenerative ag is an anchor in these, the four solutions we're going to go today. One of the pioneers in it, who doesn't do a lot of things that gets done in regenerative agriculture, he does everything just with animals. In general, Alan Savory doesn't, doesn't use a plow, he doesn't use an excavator or a bulldozer, doesn't do any earthworks, doesn't plant a single seed, doesn't plant a single tree, takes a piece of land, puts cows on it, moves them around in a controlled planned system, and restores ecosystems. And it will work in a lot of places without doing anything else. And then the additional things we talk about, like earthworks or mainline systems, key line systems, um, planting trees, all that stuff can add to it. And in some places, I think you need it. But in a lot of places, I do think cows make grass. Grass grows deep roots and perennial systems. It stabilizes ecosystems. Trees grow naturally on their own where you exclude the cows from. And you get restored ecosystems. And you get production of the highest quality nutrition in the world. I don't believe you can do better than grass-fed beef. I think there's a lot of other good nutrition. But I think grass-fed beef is, is at the top of the list. So it might not be the only thing at the top of that list, to be clear. But if you made a list of the quality of nutrition, everything on that list, beef would be on that number one position. All right. Here's what he said about holistic management, which is his rotational grazing system, what he calls it. The problem with holistic management is it's so profoundly simple, but it's not easy. And it's profoundly simple. And if it's profoundly simple, you're almost insulting people's intelligence to explain it twice. Just about making better decisions of where you want to go in your life, bringing in environmental, social, and economic issues simultaneously, Alan Slavery. And I think that a lot of times that's the problem with the entire concept of fixing our food system. All of it's simple and none of it's easy. It all requires work, it requires innovation, and it requires being open to new concepts. And it requires change. And change may be the most difficult thing of all. That's why I picked this for our quote today. And uh, think about that as we go through it. So, again, I want to start out with four solutions today. It's what I'm going to go through and kind of bullet point hit on them. There's more. And each one has things within it that we could go and, and, and tear ass into for an hour. I don't want to do that. I want to get you thinking at a higher level And I want to open your mind to some things that, like I would have said, you know, 10 years ago when people showed me a vertical farm, I said, that's stupid. In my defense, if you looked at the economics at the time, I was correct. But if you were visionary and you looked at the progression of technology and understood what to do and what not to do and were willing to take risk, it wasn't stupid. Right? That's just one example. So... I'm coming at it from these four points, and there's a lot more. So when you're like, but Jack, you didn't, I understand. I only have about an hour a day to do this with y'all, so I'm doing what I can. So solution one, and this is one of the biggest things that we hear about, especially in our space of kind of preppers, homesteaders, etc., because it's so, something so many of us want to do, grow food at home. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. Backyard gardens is probably the most popular one. So backyard gardens and planting perennial systems, fruit trees, nut trees, bushes, etc. And we can do a lot even on a small piece of land. If you really want to see how much can be done on a tiny property, check out the book by uh, Eric Tussenmeyer, and I can't think of the co-author, Jonathan something. Uh, Tussenmeyer is the guy that co-wrote Edible Forest Gardens, 
uh, with uh, Dave Jackie. And, and I think Eric doesn't get enough credit because he wasn't the headline author in that book, but he did the grunt work for all the technical stuff. He wrote a book with his, his, his buddy Jonathan called Paradise Lot. And it amazes you what can be done, mostly with perennials in a system like that. So the backyard and garden approach does produce quite a bit of food. Small livestock. That's something that I think needs to be done more if we really want to feed ourselves from our own property. Um, you know, chickens are a great example because you give a chicken food, it gives you eggs. Eggs are an incredibly high quality piece of nutrition, especially when done the right way. Um, I don't know if you made that list I was talking about with beef being in the number one slot. I don't know if eggs would go there. They'd go in number two at minimum. Uh, but we can grow meat at home, though. Rabbits and quail are probably your two best ways to do that. So we can do that. The, the issue is, no matter how much we're able to feed our animals on a property, a small property, it's almost inevitable it's going to require an outside source of feed. So while every meal of fresh rabbit or quail that you eat is taking away from the need for a pig to suffer a miserable existence in a pig CAFO, you're still having to get grain from somebody to grow quail, to my knowledge anyway. Now, we can grow some food for our livestock. Quail really love microgreens. Well, someone's got to produce all the seed for you. Though you can produce a significant portion of sunflower, Just the border of your property growing blackwell sunflower. They can't live on it alone, but you can do that. If you're growing rabbits, a bag mower and a, and a bag of ryegrass seed produces a lot of food. Now, the seed's still an outside input, but it's not something that's causing a lot of problems in the world to produce ryegrass seed. And, you know, if we grow perennial greens in our lawns like white clover, Dutch or New Zealand clover, and other good quality greens... You know, a, a bag mower, and we can feed a lot of a lot of the needs of a rabbit. And there's other ways. I do aquaculture. I grow fish, and I feed them a lot of minnows. I have tanks that are full of minnows, and I take a net and I net out the minnows, and I put it in the big pond, and the fish eat them. I also do feed fish food. Now I don't feed a lot, but I feed some. So when we look at small livestock. When we talk about growing our own food, it's almost inevitable that we have an outside input that's continuous with food. It's not horrible, but it's an acknowledgement. Um, and there's a lot of other ideas. But I wanted to give you one today to kind of open your mind to where we're going next with indoor vertical farming. I'm kicking around the idea of building a system, I've kind of talked about this, based on hydroponics that is an indoor, home-scale vertical farm that has enough capacity to feed a family of four, not all their calories, okay? Feed a family of four a meal a day every day and build it for between four and six hundred bucks. Maybe more, maybe less, somewhere in there. My goal for that would be a, a, something that can grow at least a hundred dollars worth of food a month. Now let me explain what I mean by a hundred dollars. I don't mean $100 in profit because you sold it, but I want it to be $100 of profit to the individual. So if it costs me $20 a month to run that system in fertility, in seed, in whatever, say it costs me $20 a month in electricity or $25, whatever that number is, then if it's $25, bucks, it better produce, when I look at all the food that comes out of it and I put it on the plate and my family eats it, 
That food should have cost me at least $125 in a store. And the reason I look at it that way is if I can produce a $600 profit in six months in food. So you're, you've got two costs here that I'm, I'm hitting on. You've got your capital investment. If we're thinking like a business person, that's a rack and lights and trays and all that shit. And then you got your recurring costs. So I would consider a net pot a non-recurrent cost. That thing has a life cycle of years. I would consider a plug, if you're using plugs to plan into, a recurrent cost. There's a certain cost of putting 50 plugs into a system every year or every month, whatever it is. Okay? I would consider seed a recurrent cost. I would consider fertilizer a recurrent cost. And your biggest recurrent cost, I would consider electricity. But lights and a pump, if you're using a pump, and I ain't sure yet, well, I would consider that a capital investment. So you take recurrent costs minus output, you get profit. And I want the system to pay for itself in six months or less. I, I'm, I've run some base numbers. I'm not sure. I got a lot of checking to do, but I don't think it's even hard to do. And here's what got me thinking this. I get a lot of emails from people. Check this out. You can grow food in your kitchen. And it's like this system from Ikea or something. And it's hydro and lights and it's like 1200 bucks. And honest to God, I look at that and go, you can't feed yourself for shit with that. You can't. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying I'm looking at capacity. How much does this produce? So if you wanted to be able to sit there and trim a little bit of basil and thyme and oregano and mint every day and maybe grow a couple little bits of lettuce for once a week, some arugula, yeah. Yeah, it'll do that. And it'll take like 27 years to pay for itself, at least. At least. But if I can walk in every day for dinner, just for dinner, and cut two or three small heads of lettuce and some arugula and some spinach and some mustard greens and some yadfa or whatever and some celery, and I can go take that and I can make a side dish and a salad, and then my protein comes from wherever the hell it comes from. And I can do that every day. And if you go look at what, and again, we want equivalent. High quality, fresh, organic produce. And you can't get equivalent. You can't buy what I'm talking about. Because you can't buy something that's on your plate literally five minutes after it's cut. You can't do it. Now, I think using something like a 48-inch stainless steel rack, the Barina lights, the four-foot ones, that I can build a system that does that for maybe 350 bucks. It depends. I gotta figure it out. And I think if you really systematize it as in, here's the varieties to plant. Here's how long these take to come to maturity. Here's when to start your next batch. Here's how to plan everything out so that a person can take this and basically say, here's the stuff I want. Click, 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 click in a spreadsheet and it gives them a schedule. And you don't need any fancy software to do that. This is something that I can work up over time playing with stuff. That you can build a system that's four foot by 18 inches and do what I just said for under $600. And I have a hard time telling somebody spent $600 on an indoor food growing system that I know is going to produce them $25 worth of herbs and lettuce a month. I think that's stupid. Again, ROI doesn't pay itself back. But here's why I'm thinking this. So I built that little system. In a little rack. It's two foot wide by, I think, about two foot by two foot is what it is. So it's a four square foot footprint. 
for starting seeds. It's working really good. I'm going to have some videos out this week about some modifications I'm going to be making uh, to help with you know not damaging roots and all. But I just started 130 plants just to see what the hell would happen. I had some issues. Some things didn't do well. Spinach hates it for some reason. i got to figure out how to fix that. I will. Um, i got some ideas on that. But i got some heads of lettuce up there. Did have been growing for two and a half weeks. They're as big as my hand. They're ready to, they're not ready to harvest as a full size head, but as a, is, you know, bigger than baby leaf. I mean, two of them and Dorothy and I have a salad, especially two different varieties. So there's a blend and I've got arugula that's been in there three weeks. It's touching the lights and I'm growing it way too close together for that purpose. I'm doing it for seed starting. And what I figured out is I need like, instead of three weeks to start seed, and get it ready to transplant, I need like 12 days. So it works great for seed starting. But if I just give a little more space, now I'm doing 30 plants a shelf, and it's not an efficient use of space. If you've seen the video, you know why. If you haven't, it's because I'm using two like big aluminum turkey pans. I needed some kind of reservoir shallow enough to keep the plants low enough from the lights they had room to freaking grow. Since I was doing it with hydro instead of dirt, I needed that shallow system. Well, because of that, there's a lot of wasted space where the foam board sits over the two pans where they come together in the middle and you got that spot where they kind of come up. So if I had a reservoir that was, you know, two foot by 18 or whatever the dimensions of that shelf is without that middle piece, and it was a single reservoir, which if I'm going to build this for a home farming system, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to waste that space. I could probably put 20 there with a lot more space in between the plants And I grow 20 on a shelf. Well, that means I can grow 40 plants a shelf with a four-foot rack. Well, if I got two racks doing that, I got 80 plants in grow-out mode. But I can cram 80 plants into a starting system in the bottom tier on top of a sump. And I can even run recirculating in that. Oh, while I'm at it, I can, I can put microgreens on the top shelf without a light. Because you start microgreens for a number of days, and all you do is put them under light to green them up and grow them out for a few days. So I could build a system that's growing you two or three different varieties of microgreens at home scale quantities. It's just no big deal. And a massive amount of, you know, and I found like Mazuma, Mazuma mustard grows like freaking mad in a system like this. And I'm not even doing it right yet. So if you can tell I'm a little bit excited about this, I'm trying to keep myself in check. I got so much other crap to get done. I don't want to get sidetracked with another project before all my other projects are finished. But I believe I can put together a system that'll let a person that wants to grow a hundred to two hundred dollars worth of food a month for their family with almost no work. There's some I can't get into all the particulars of it today, but if I do it right and formulate it, basically you'll harvest for a week and that'll open a week's worth of holes. After that, you'll take your starts from your starting area and drop them into those week's worth of holes. You'll seed enough for the, for, to replace what you just moved out of the starting area. And it'll be like a quadrant. like It's like a three or four week grow out. I haven't figured it out yet. And there might even be some overlap because some things are less than others. And then instead of being like a farmer where we go in and this is this week's harvest, we cut it all today. This is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, we harvest, we transplant, and we reseed. 
It's two minutes of work a day, and it's 15 minutes on Sunday. And I think you'd have to break your back in a garden to get even close to what I'm talking about. And here's why this works. And this is where we go with vertical farming next. You're controlling the temperature in your house anyway. The only thing you're paying for is the lights and maybe a pump, depending on what I come up with. And the only thing that doesn't make it look really good is the purpley pink lights. And if you wanted to spend more money for white lights, you could do it. right? You could make this look as good or as redneck as you want, but if it's in a spare bedroom, do you care? And since it's so hands-off, it might make sense. Now, it'll never look good as that damn thing from Ikea for $1,200, but it will grow you 50 times the food. Now, let's move into indoor vertical farming. And this kind of backtracks into what we just talked about. It does some things very well. And what it does well is short-term, low-growing crops. You've seen something that you can grow out in 14 to 40 days, somewhere in that, that realm, that is quick tur- that's quick turn, that's a quick turn, and it doesn't grow real tall. What vertical farming is, whether it's done with like grow strips, grow towers, or it's done horizontally stacked, is we take an area that's, let's say, 100 foot by 100 foot, and that would have a given amount of food that it can grow, but people got to be able to walk in between rows. So we set that up, and then we have another level, and another level, and another level, and another, and as many as will fit up to the roof, and if there's, let's say, it's a tall room, and we could put 10 layers in there, we can grow tenfold what we could in a field, but we can grow, we can do better than that. And the reason we can do better than that is since we control the environment, the nutrition, the water, we literally control air circulation, we control everything. Instead of being able, let's say, in a field to do three turns a year on lettuce, we can do seven. So a system like that may be able to outproduce field cultivation or single-layer cultivation anywhere between seven to 20 times. All of a sudden, it becomes viable. Here's the thing. You have major capital investment. If you start pricing this stuff and scaling out a system that size, you're talking millions of dollars to set up a relatively small urban farm, so, or uh, a vertical farm. Some of these vertical farms have had investments of $300 million. And we'll get to what that means for the system as its viability in a minute and what could be good and really bad about it long term. Right? But it works. It does work. People like that don't put hundreds of millions of dollars into something unless it's begun to show economic viability. They just don't because they're into making money, not losing it. Right? The technology behind this stuff is about 10 years into development. It's older, but the real serious development where people go into an office to grow food at major scale and we're talking metric shit tons of food being produced here, is about 10 years in earnest. And it has come a long way in 10 years. And you look at it now, and some of these videos I've got, I've got a whole bunch of videos linked into the show notes for you. One is about a girl, her boss is a computer. It's a massive farm, there's only about eight employees, and she's worked herself up to where she's kind of one of the top people there. But her boss is a computer. The computer tells her what to do and when to do it. 
John, John Pugliano said the robots are coming a couple years ago. They're freaking here. And 80% of the work in this thing is done by a robot. And one of the other videos, I don't know if it's one I've linked to or not, but one I, I, I watched recently in my research on this, the guy made an incredible point. He said, you can tell me, if you're a chef, the best basil you've ever had in your life was when you were in Sicily in 1986 on a specific coast. And I can look at climatic records, duration of the sun, the temperature, etc., the soil profile that that basil grew in, and I can, if I really, really want to, if you're willing to pay for it, I can produce that basil. There's a level of control there that on some levels is almost scary, but when you look at it that way, you'd say, wow, this technology has evolved. It's not even begun to evolve yet. They're learning so many things. You know, the number one thing I've, I've figured out the industry learned, if you're using a scissor lift in one of these systems, you are stupid. It costs way too much money and way too much time to manage a vertical farm with a scissor lift. They would have asked me, coming from my background with cable technology and, and, and contracting installation, I would have told them that. They wouldn't have, because to move one cable across a roof when you have to use a scissor lift instead of a ladder is insane. There's places only scissor lifts work. They're good for that. Scissor lifts were not made for indoor farming. Indoor farming saw the scissor lift and said that's a solution. <clears throat> to truly evolve a solution, what you do is you design the system And if there's existing tech, you use it only if it makes sense for the system. And I've, I watched one discussion from vertical farms that went out of business. And the number one consensus was no scissor lifts. That the labor cost added by using a scissor lift destroyed. So if something that basic took 10 years to figure out, how far can we push this? See, every time they figure out a way to tweak things just a little bit and take, well, this crop is a 33-day turn crop, and they turn it into a 30-day turn crop. They just added one turn every 10 turns. 10 just became 11. And every time they figure out how to drop the price of electricity by one penny a kilowatt, the total cost of an industrial-scale one goes down, and the profit goes up. The cheapest electricity on the planet by 2035 is going to be solar. I know you don't believe me, but it's going to be. If we ever get our ass off of our asses and start building the latest in nuclear power technology, we'll be able to provide people power for four to five cents a kilowatt. Delivered. Oh, nuclear. There ain't a nuclear plant like I'm talking about in America today. We ain't built one in decades. The tech today there is just way, way advanced. It almost won't matter, though. I'm telling you, solar, Tony Seba's right. Solar is going to drive electrical production costs down, especially with the concept of if I'm a company and I can secure financing and I'm putting in a vertical farm, I'm going to be able to put a solar farm in that runs my facility. And that might seem kind of stupid. Because, again, we have this big glowing orb of light. I get it. I don't think that... Vertical farming is the solution to save the planet, and I don't think it is the best solution at our disposal, but I think it is going to be a solution because it does some things very well, and I think it excels at growing product for the most discerning customer 
concerned about not how it was produced, but what was produced, i.e. restaurants, high-end boutique retail outlets, etc. Because you have the ability to be 100% predictable and control is total and complete over what you're doing. And if you say, if, if I'm a sales manager for you, and I come in and say, I got a new contract, customer wants to start taking delivery in 45 days, this is what they want, you can get, if you have the capacity, you can guarantee it. And we're about to move into greenhouse farming, which gets close, but it ain't that close. So I see this working to a degree. The problems, cost is exceptionally high to start up. Operational cost is high. But for as many as have gone bankrupt, there's one that's profitable. And the newest ones are the most profitable because they're using the latest tech. All right? Uh, the barrier to entry, though, is very high. And my big concern for this specific technology is technocrats are developing systems at a high rate of progress. Which means it's big money that's developing another centralized system of control. That's my actual concern with indoor farming. I don't see the day that two guys in their garage can start vertical farming and be profitable anytime soon. Those, uh, the, the kind of entry point for a lot of people that want to get into this right now, and these are people that I, I don't want to be harsh to anybody that has a dream and pursues it and is hardworking and dedicated. But I swear to God, when somebody buys one of these things, all I can think is, unless you got a rich uncle to pay for it and you don't have to pay him back, uh, and it was the only way you could get him to do it, they have more money than brains. Because they're paying $110,000 for a shipping container farm with like 246 vertical um, grow towers in it. And it, it is impressive. I got a video where you can look at one. It's impressive. It looks like a dadgone spaceship. There's a computer that manages everything, and it works. It's highly productive. But the ROI on it, to me, is not there. So what I think is maybe one of for vegetative production, and I want to pause for a second. And, and, and I, just like I said, I want to anchor the greenhouse and the hydro and the indoor and the vertical and all this back to analyzing it as people that produce a lot of our own food from home. The best advice I can give someone who wants to spend a minimal amount of time producing their own food is not willing to take on the burden of animals, but wants the best bang for their buck is grow your nutrition and buy your calories. I want you to take that as a quote of the day into your mind, and I want you to ponder it. Grow your nutrition and buy your calories. I've moved to keto. That puts me a little bit biased. I'm open about it. But if I, when I sit down to eat tonight, we're going to make basically a taco salad. I'm going to take some grass-fed ground beef. I'm going to saute it up and season it. And it's going to go on a beautiful bed of greens. The greens are the nutrition. And there's some other things going to go on here, right? But the greens are the nutrition. And the, the beef and the cheese, for example. Are my calories. Now, I may use some homemade dressing that's made from an egg that I created. So I'm producing some of my own calories. But again, some people don't want to take that burden on. Buy your calories. Grow your nutrition. 
And if, even if you're not a heavy meat eater, calories come from, when it comes to agri, from, it comes from non-meat, right? They come from commodity crops. They come from potatoes. Now, I can grow potatoes indoors in a cool way. And you know what? For as many potatoes as I eat a year, it probably makes sense. If you have, but calories that go into humans in this country come from soy, potato, corn, rice, wheat. None of those make sense to grow at small scale at home. I'm going to get an email from somebody about how much wheat they grew in their backyard. Great, good for you. Doesn't make sense for most people. So whether it's meat, dairy, egg, or commodity crop, grow your nutrition, buy your calories. That is the best approach for the most people, not everybody, for the most people. And even if you're going to have animals and all, start out growing your nutrition and buying your calories and slowly add the ability to produce calories. All right? Now, moving into greenhouse farming. What I like about greenhouse farming, depending on where you are and what makes the most sense, it can use soil, it can use hydro, it can use aquaponics. So you're not going to do an indoor vertical farm growing in soil. And you're probably not going to do an indoor vertical farm using aquaponics. You can do an indoor farm using aquaponics, but you're probably not going to do vertical aquaponics. It probably isn't going to make sense. There's a measurable control with a hydro system where I can test that water and change its parameters in about five seconds. And with automated systems, I don't even have to do it. The automated systems they have now, like at home, you're testing your pH and adding some pH down, and uh, there's my total dissolved solids is up, and uh, so I need to dilute with some water, maybe do some, take some water out. It, you can do it. It doesn't take much work in a small system. It really doesn't. But in a big system, you have a computer that has, a, that has stuff it can inject into the system, and it just changes it. It just changes it. You can't do that with aquaponics because you'll kill your fish. And your fish are constantly creating a variable. But we can do aquaponics in a greenhouse. Richard Hastings from this community been on a show here. Huge greenhouse operation running aquaponics in East Texas. Successful business. Never farmed a day in his life. Set that up a few years ago and within a year was solvent. Has enough money coming in to belay costs and pay off equipment. So it can be done with any of those operations. And I like that because it gives maximum flexibility. Because if you ask me, well, I'm going to put a greenhouse in, should I do aquaponics, hydroponics, or grow in soil? I would say what? If you're a long-term listener, you know the exact two words I'm going to say. It depends. Well, it lets you answer it depends correctly if you have the option. Next, it is exceptional like home production, like hydroponics, which you can use, and like vertical farming for greens and herbs. Really excels at growing greens, herbs, lettuces, spinaches, mizunas, etc. But it's also very good at crops like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, and cucumbers. So when we have a greenhouse, we're probably not using artificial light. Or maybe we are. We'll get to that in a second. But in general, we're not doing the bulk of our growing with artificial light. That means we're not doing vertical farming unless we're using something like grow towers. So we can do it with grow towers, but if we do that, we still get to a position where we can't do it everywhere or one row of things shades the next row out. 
But what that does mean is we can strategically locate where we can grow tall. Like, let's say, a north wall, so we're shading nothing out, and we can grow peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers. We can grow in the center of a very wide greenhouse, and we get summer sun on, or morning sun on one side and, 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 and heavy uh, sun on the other. And we don't have to worry. We talked about yesterday with gardening, like western sun, generally bad for gardeners, not in a controlled temperature greenhouse with shade cloth. So we, there's a lot of ways we can integrate taller growing things into a greenhouse system. We can pay the bills with the quick-turn crops, and we can have long-term production with tomatoes and peppers, etc. And when you have a fully controlled environment, we're doing hydro. We're not dealing with blight with our tomatoes because there's no soil-for-soil-based fungi to get in there and cause blight. We grow that tomato. We can harvest from that tomato for almost a full year before we have to replace it. On the other hand, in some of these cold climates, we have market gardeners like Curtis Stone's buddy, I can't remember his name now, up there in British Columbia, growing massive amounts of tomatoes right in the ground inside a greenhouse. Curtis grows inside a greenhouse, right in the ground. That brings up another one I'll throw in with this, because a lot of people that do this also use greenhouses, spin farming. So farming in other people's backyards, most people that are spin farmers eventually get good enough, they can get a place of their own, and they farm on their own land, And if they need more production, they keep farming a few other spin farms. But almost everyone I've seen that's become successful has brought greenhouses into play at some point. And most of them farm in soil. Why? Because that's what they know. Is it because it's the best solution? It might be. Or it might not be. It depends. Now, one of the biggest uh, opponents to indoor farming and large-scale greenhouse farming that I have seen is the market gardeners, market farmers, spin farmers. They think it's a terrible idea. I'm going to tell you why. You may not like what I'm about to say, but it's true, and I think their, their concern is overrated. It's a threat to them. If I'm Curtis Stone and the majority of my income comes from 20 restaurants, and you put in a great big giant perfectly controlled greenhouse or vertical farm down the road, and you happen to excel at growing the things that I happen to excel at growing, because what do those guys grow? Fast-turn greens. That's what they grow. Some, some peppers and tomatoes and stuff, but mostly they make their money on greens. Go look up Curtis Stone on YouTube and find his videos on his most profitable crops. They're all greens. Greens and ginger. Ginger has now become a thing if you have a greenhouse, right? So and now if I can do this... At a massive scale, with a tenth of the labor you do it with, I can take your customers away. And I think that's one of the reasons that people don't want to see the future, and I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous because if you deny it because you don't like it, you're likely to have a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it will take over, and you won't be part of the takeover, you'll be part of the taking over. So that's a little heads up for people that are making money on that type of kind of spin backyard farming right now. Now, I think the way to get more resilient with that is if you're selling to your friends and neighbors and you build a retail base and you train your customers how you want them to do business with you, I think there's a way around that as well. I've been playing with how that might work. Um, but that's what they're good at. Uh, one of the videos I'll share with you today, if you go look through it, the one on you know eventually growing rice, He calls crops that can be grown indoors tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier three is you know your grains, your commodity crops, trees. 
Yeah, tree. I, again, I don't think that's probably the way to go for most situations. Tier two, tomatoes, peppers, etc. Tier one are your leafy greens. Greenhouse is really good at tier one and tier two by that guy's definition. So, relatively quick annual producing crops and greens. The energy costs of greenhouse farming range from very high to very low. What are you trying to accomplish with your energy inputs? Are you trying to grow your round? And what are you? What is your base of operations? There's a video. I'll find that one and add it too if I can remember. Let me make a note right now so I don't forget it. Now I'm just going to write down on this little piece of paper in front of me, rooftop. And I'll try to remember the other one. I promised you. Um, but they built. It's in. It's in Canada. It's the world's first commercial greenhouse rooftop farm. They're sitting on top of a two or three story building. It's a fairly big footprint. And they have very low heating costs, even though they're in freaking Montreal, Canada, where it gets kind of cold. Why? They get a massive amount of free heat coming through the floor of the, 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 the roof of the building, which is their floor. Now that, see, here's the thing. That building must be heated anyway. It must be heated anyway. Likewise, in the summer, they're lowering the cost of electricity for the building owner because they're providing shade overhead of the building and a green area on top of the roof. Now, I watched one one of the guys, I can't remember his name now, he's like, they consider him like the godfather of vertical farming, even though he's never grown a tomato in his life for all I know. He's from Columbia University. He came up with the concept. He said he figured out with his students back in the 70s or 80s in New York that they could only grow 2% of the city's food with rooftop farming. But I don't think he did it with greenhouses. And I don't think the average building in New York City is actually suited for rooftop farming. But I think in a lot of cities, roofs are ideally suited for it. Look at a Walmart. How much food could you grow with a greenhouse with environmental controls on the top of a Walmart? And I don't care if it's in, in Winnipeg, Canada, or Tallahassee, Florida. I don't care what the climate is. It's a massive amount of food. And how many Walmarts are there? How many Targets? How many big flat roof buildings are out there that are somehow environmentally controlled so that humans can work in them? How many Amazon warehouses could this be done with? So I think that the advantage this has over roof, over vertical farming is that the input costs on an ongoing basis are less. And I don't care if that greenhouse is on the ground or on a roof. The roof even does it less, but then we got another operational consideration in there. Right? But then we're not taking any new land away. We're using something that's already being used. And if the building, if its operations goes out of business, well, now we can put vertical farming below the greenhouse and extend our season. Or we can create a distribution center. Or Do you see what I'm saying? Because some percentage of buildings, the people that go in there to begin with, are going to go out of business. Not all of them. But if I built, let's say I built a system like this, in a major metropolitan area like Dallas-Fort Worth, and one of my building, and I have 10 of them, and one of my building landlords says, I'm going under, and my operation's profitable, and I buy that building, I now have a distribution center. Or I, I buy it and rent it to somebody that needs a building. Who knows? 
And the tenant becomes a landlord. It happens all the time in a lot of businesses. Um, the startup costs can be cheap to extremely high. You can put a... See, this is why I think $110,000 on a shipping container is stupid. You can put a massive greenhouse, if you have a place for it in your backyard, with a lot of environmental controls. And I'm talking permanent-type structure here for $50,000. I'm talking 4,000 square foot. And that's with fans. That's with uh, evaporative cooling, uh, a cooling wall. That's with shade cloth. That's with cover cloth. What's cover cloth? Cover cloth is it's wintertime, so the shade cloth is gone. So I get as much sun in there as I can. Now, the sun's getting ready to go down. So instead of pushing a button, my shade cloth comes over. I push a button and basically like a tent inside the greenhouse. So if you're on the outside now, you can't see anything inside. And if you're on the inside, you can't see anything outside. That holds the heat way better than glass or plastic ever could. That's expensive, but it's, it's, it's peanuts compared to a shipping container. And as good as a shipping container is, it, a 320-foot a, a, a uh, square foot shipping container is not going to outproduce a 40,000 square foot hydroponics-driven greenhouse that I can do the hydroponic systems in, you know, and be under $100,000. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying it's a relative comparison. Now, what can happen is, and this is where I want you to start seeing the holistic nature, we can start hybriding things here. So I have a greenhouse, and I have all that beautiful sunlight to grow plants out. Well, I can start sort of vertical farming. All of my hydroponic stuff is going to be elevated. That helps me return it to a sump, but it just makes working easier for people. They don't have to bend over. It's faster. We've got to think about labor costs as your main recurring cost in a business. So we have an elevated system. Don't we have space underneath? So we can do all our starting under light. Then we can put lighting in. And you know at night when those covers come over, and there's greenhouses that do this already. So starting to get dark. I don't even have to have me flip the switch. I've got an automated system here if I've gone all in on investment. The, the computer senses it is time. And it's a different time on December 7th than it is on December 21st than it is on March 13th. It is time. It is cold enough outside, and it's getting dark. Your inner covers come in. Your heat is now returned. Your lights come on. But they don't run for 18 hours like they do in a vertical farm. Your lights come on, and they run for three hours. And they keep your production at the same level in January, though they might be a slightly different crop, than it is in June. And in June, it's warming up. It's warming up. Overcomes the shade cloth. It's warming up more. I'll come open up the louvers. Warms up a little more. Fans go on. Warms up a little bit more. A raft of cooler kicks in. There, there are greenhouses. There's one in Singapore that's vertical farming in a greenhouse with cheap energy. It uses the water that's recirculating, turns a water wheel, and the whole farm spins so that the plants get even light all day long. And it uses some stupid... I don't even want to tell you. You have to read the article if you want to see it. I'll try to find that one article. Rotation. You won't believe it till you read it. You'll, you'll think I'm full of shit when I tell you how cheap it is to run it for a day. Now, understand, electricity in Singapore is cheap, but it ain't that cheap. So, with greenhouses, we can do a lot of things that vertical farming does 
and we can lower our operational costs. But we can't get the precise level of environmental controls. All right? So you might be thinking, well, then uh, greenhouse just makes more sense. Maybe. The entry barrier is high, but it's much lower than indoor farming. And there's a lot of abandoned greenhouse operations. There's a place not far from me, gorgeous greenhouses. I don't know what the hell they did with them. Now, you'd have to be careful. What you want to do, that original structure may not have been built to do well. But there's a lot of greenhouse farms that have gone out of business over the years. And that means there's a lot of infrastructure sitting out there. And it's something you could start in the backyard with, develop a system with, and then be able to take a business plan to uh, an agricultural loan company and get a loan. And there's grants from NRCS for high tunnels, et cetera. There's a lot of things that can be done that makes entry a lot more viable for mo most people than vertical farming or a dadgone $110,000 space-age look and shipping container that's never going to do anything except make you go bankrupt. Right. Uh, I mean, if, if, if Elon Musk's brother, I can't think of his name, is giving him away because he's philanthropic or something, fine, fine. But it, don't go investing $110,000 in a shipping tender. Now let's move to regen agriculture. Remember when I said grow your nutrition and buy your calories? See, I see regen agriculture as being our main source of calories in this model or a main source of calories in this model. There are some things that Regen Ag does very well, and that is livestock, trees, shrubs, and perennials. And we'll talk about land restoration as a separate thing. I'm talking about the stuff that leaves the farm and makes people have food in their belly, because we're talking about feeding people today. The environmental repair is a byproduct of it if we do it right. What I say about business, you run a business properly, you stop worrying about money. Because the money is there. When a business is run properly, assuming it's a viable business model, you should not be thinking about money other than not being foolish with it. But whether or not the revenue will come in should be a, not a concern. If it is, something's operationally wrong. So with regenerative agriculture, if you're running the production co component correctly, the land's getting healthier. It can't help but get healthier. Now, we can do alley cropping. And Mark Shepard did a lot of alley cropping when he started up New Forest Farms. So that is, we got a row of trees here, we got a row of trees here, we got a row of trees here. And in between some of the trees, we're growing zucchini. And we're selling organic zucchini as a cash crop while that chestnut tree grows because we ain't getting no chestnuts off of it for a few years. We'll start grazing animals and all, but we need something to pay the bills. And it's viable and it works. And that crop could be lettuce. But I'm going to tell you that everybody that I know that's followed Mark's model or any similar model that's become successful either was able to not do that at all or they did it like Mark did, to pay the bills, get the operation off the ground. And when the operation became operational and we got the perennial production, we got the animal production, etc., I don't want to do that. It's too much work. So it is a short-term alley crop solution, or it is perennial alley cropping. So, for instance, one of the systems I, I designed with Mark and his team was for a client that would have trees here and trees there and a big wide alley, and in that alley there would be crops like elderberry and aronia, which are you know high-level nutritional products that can be sold into that industry that you don't have to go out and find a buyer for. 
It, it, it's In a way, it's a commodity crop of its own. And you plant the row a certain width, and you do it a certain way, and you set everything up right for production, and you don't pay people to go pick elderberries. That sucks. You have a straddle harvester. Just go through, completely automated. Machine shows up once a year, does harvest. Another machine does cut, and you can run, yes, you can run regen ag with that level of efficiency. And you can graze animals, etc. And it does that okay. I guarantee you, if you start talking about vertical farming or greenhouse farming to Mark Shepard, he'd wave you off until you got him to listen to maybe what I'm talking about today. But if you said to him, Mark, I've got 12 acres of land and I want to start a farm, he'd say, well, that's pretty small for the kind of thing I do, but yeah, you can do that. And you say, well, what do you want to do? And you say, I want to grow lettuce. He'd look at you like you got a lizard coming out of your ear and an ugly pink lizard. If they, they, that doesn't make any sense. You're going to go broke. You're not going to make any money. Okay. So what you're telling me then is, if you want to grow lettuce for a family or for a small co-op or something, growing in that environment is, is, is doable. But if you want to grow lettuce at scale, then you shouldn't do it there. Well, where should you do it? Where it grows the fastest and the most dependably, which isn't a greenhouse or a vertical farm which frees up that land to do other things that it does better. Now, a lot of people, and I love the one guy, I can't think of his name now, again, the guy from Columbia University that kind of started this whole vertical farming thing as a, as a term anyway. He said when people tell him that growing indoors isn't natural, he loves that because farming isn't natural. And I have a hard time with that because on some levels I think farming is the most natural thing for a human being to do. But I know what he means. Plowing a thousand acres and planting corn in it is not natural. Plowing a hundred acres and planting it with lettuce and peppers and tomatoes is not natural. A natural ecosystem can't exist there if, see, because this is where people lose sight of how much food you have to produce for the system to work. And remember we started out with, for all of the nuclear bomb level problems the modern food system has, it works. The amount of food sold in supermarkets in the United States alone, four years ago, $690 billion in food. $690 billion worth of food just in one country, just in supermarkets, and we're talking produce. Now, when you start trying to get your head around, people say, well, you can't live on lettuce. But we, my God, would you go to a grocery store and look how much lettuce is in there? And when you go back next week, none of the lettuce you saw last week is the lettuce you're seeing now. It's all gone and been replaced. It's all come from somewhere else. This is a thing people eat. Grow your nutrition by your calories. We can take that and apply it elsewhere. So when we look at Regen Ag, we just have to accept there's some things. It's not that they can't be done in a, in a positive way, but when we speak of Regen Ag at mass scale, terraforming thousands of acres, it's not good for grown lettuce. It's not even good for grown tomatoes. Does not mean can't grow tomatoes and lettuce in the soil in a healthy, safe way. It does mean when you want to produce enough to feed the world, the lettuce and tomatoes they eat, it's really hard to do. You know who produces the most tomatoes in the world outside the United States and feeds more, more 
countries than any country other than the United States. Holland, the Netherlands, I'm sorry, the Netherlands. I got some videos in the notes today. You look at what they do, it's unbelievable. Tomatoes and peppers. The Netherlands is the number two food exporter in the world. They grow almost everything in highly controlled greenhouse environments, mostly with hydroponics. And they don't have a big pollution problem from doing that compared to what we're doing in the Mississippi River every year with our crop runoff. So I think we can make regenerative agriculture the main way we produce mostly meat and perennials. And I think then we can actually do some other things that I'll talk about the concept of holistics at the end here. But let's talk about some of the honest issues with Regen Ag. It requires uh, a large amount of land and significant equipment for earthworks. I love what I've done on my little three-acre property. I love my little three-quarter-acre food forest. It is a great example of what can be done, and it is a unique, very interesting ecosystem. There's things going on over there that within 100 miles of my house probably aren't going on anywhere else. It's that radical of a transformation. It also is not going to change the world. It's not. And this is not the ideal land for it. You can't take a yeoman's plow and key line or main line plow my land because you will destroy the plow in the first 15 minutes of dragging it across my property. It will eat the plow. So it doesn't work everywhere. We can do a lot with it in a lot of places, but it doesn't work everywhere at the type of scale we're talking about today. Feeding the world scale, not feeding you scale. It also requires detailed knowledge of animal husbandry, and it, in most instances, at least initially, quite a bit of external feed. Joel Salton buys grain for chickens and pigs. Joel Salton. Probably the, the best in the world at what he does. Greg Judy buys almost no feed for his cattle, but he's not raising pork. At least not to my knowledge, anyway. And I bet you if he ever does, he's going to have to buy some feed. So there are limits to what we can do with those models, and it doesn't even mean not to do them, or they're not valid, or they're not the best thing in the world. It just means if we won't acknowledge those, because what we're going to need to do then is we still need some production of grain, some production of hay, Just like we have to acknowledge the reason that something like greenhouse or vertical farming might make sense is people are going to eat freaking lettuce and basil. Can't live on lettuce and basil alone. Yeah, but a lot of people eat it all the time. Um, the next big limitation is, in most instances, you're not going to be doing the type of regenerative ag, large-scale, holistic grazing, earthworks, etc., that I'm talking about today, 100-acre-plus operations, very close to urban areas. And it's because of the combination of cost, the land's too expensive, regulations, the scarcity of even land being available to do it. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't have a beautiful 20-acre park in the middle of a metro area that grows a shit ton of food. But let's be honest, we're not going to feed the world with that alone. Now, if we can do that and it can feed 2% of the world, great. We should do that. I've, I've, I've summed this up years ago. When Mark and I would have discussions, Mark Shepard and I would have discussions about this, and he was so much on, we need the big solutions. And he would, he would acknowledge the backyard, but it was almost like, I have to do it. And I said, we need backyards to broad acres. We need all of it. 
And if something only can do 1%, that's 1% the other things don't have to do. And there's a lot more that goes on with these other solutions, like the conservation of water, the lack of runoff, the lack of interfering with wilderness. Because right now, if we don't do some of these other things, in addition to the restoration, we're going to have to cut more forests down between now and 2050 just to feed the additional people this planet's going to have. There's no if, and, or but about that. We will have to. And if you're cutting and clearing new land, you're not regrowing old, are you? The current system does work and will feed the planet in 2050. It'll also strip mine it all the way there. These are things that can begin moving the needle in the right direction. So the other problem with regenerative agriculture is the cost of entry is high. I don't know if you've priced 100 or 200 acres of land suitable to farm, even in the, in, in the regen model that will work where other methods won't. But it's expensive. The good news is the, probably the easiest thing for a person in this country to get money for from financing, other than a, a college loan, is the purchase of real estate. Because it has a solid underlying value, and that means that money is more available in the form of a loan, and there's a lot of programs and things like that. And a lot of the regenerative, regenerative agricultural things can be done with the existing system, including grants and stuff like that. Now, I know some of you, we shouldn't be, a, I understand, but I'm not worried about what you or I do. I'm worried about will farmers who are already taking that money do it? And there's a lot of ways to do earthworks and simply call them, instead of a swale, the USDA Code 600 Agricultural Terrace, And all of a sudden, NRCS thinks it's a good idea, and you can get grants for it, and you can get, you're going to take land out of production, and some of those grants aren't so you can do things. It's because, okay, you're going to take 10% of your land out of production by creating these riparian areas. Okay, so they'll pay you as though you were producing on that land for a number of years in return for you taking it out of production to stop shit from going into the ocean as bluntly as possible. So that's, there is ways to do it, but it is a high barrier of entry. And that's all of this stuff at scale has a high barrier of entry because there's a lot of money involved in getting started. So what can we look at for holistic solutions? I think, number one, home production does what it can and should continue to do so and be encouraged to do more. But my personal view, and this is a number I pulled out of my ass, but I bet you it's a pretty good number for one pulled out of my ass. Only about 10% of people are even willing. You get... 20 people in a room and say, how many people here are willing to put some serious effort into growing your own food? Not would like a garden, but you explain what it means to produce 5% of their food a year and say, are you willing to do this? The money, the time, the effort, the inconvenience, the fact you have to care for something. I bet if you're lucky, two people are left standing. I think if you say, how many people here would like a garden? Like 18 to 20 stand up. How many people here are willing to work five hours a week in your garden? 52 weeks a year. Pfft, bunch of them sit down. Explain exactly what goes into it, you're left with two. About 10%. And that's my experience of talking to people over the years. Everybody loves the idea, so it only will ever do so much. Because most people that do it, of the 10% that will do it, are going to produce somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 25% of their food. That's going to be average. 
And that's not calories. That's budget. That's budget. That's money. If you're producing 25% of your food by budget, you're at the top of the average. There's people doing a lot more, but you're at the top of the average. Now, one way to accentuate that, grow your nutrition, buy your calories. Nutrition's expensive. Um, Next, indoor farms should grow what they grow best, and that technology should continue to be developed, and the market will determine its viability. If you think it's it, there's pe- the biggest opponents to vertical farming insist that it's not viable, then don't worry, because markets punish non-viable solutions quickly, and vertical farms aren't getting massive amounts of government money, not in this country anyway. It's being privately financed. It either will or will not work. I believe that it will, and I believe over time. It will become a dominant form of the production of certain crops and into specific, highly discerning markets. Greenhouses will grow even more and get better at what they do. I think greenhouse farming is for produce, the future of farming. And all you have to do is visit a well-run greenhouse farm. And you'll agree. And the only thing you'll come up with is it doesn't scale. Watch the videos of the Netherlands. If the Dutch can do it, the Americans can do it. We are blessed with more land and better climate, but that is becoming less and less the case. And it is not because global climate change because of CO2. It is because the weather patterns change and farming in the modern way is a mining operation. We're mining soil while we export it through erosion at the same time. And some of the most productive land in this country is becoming fallow and desert. And when we put a greenhouse in, we control the environment, and we go to something like a hydroponics technology, not for all crops, for God's sakes. We're not going to grow pumpkins that way, right? Okay, we stop that because we use less land to produce more food and therefore more land we can now restore and put cattle and sheep or wildlife on it. The only way we can take farmland, you got to understand, that for this to be an honest discussion instead of what we want it to be, we are in a position where there is a projected population growth globally of 2 billion people between now and 2050. If we are wrong by half, and it's only 1 billion, and it may be, that's still a billion more people to feed. Unless you can do more production on a smaller area, the only solution is to clear more land and turn more land into farmland. And if you're turning more land into farmland, you can't be turning farmland into holistic grazing land or wilderness. You can't do it. That's why these solutions have to be considered. Um, So the greenhouses get better at what they do, and Regen Agriculture then should become our dominant source of calories. Now, that is somewhat fanciful. I think it's going to be a long time before people accept that the best nutrition in the world is, is, is fat and protein. 
and that we need to produce less potatoes and less corn and stop growing corn to make freaking gasoline, for God's sakes. This is stupid. It's a, that's a market that could never exist without government manipulation. We're trying to feed people, and we're turning corn into freaking gasoline. It's stupid on its face. But Regen Ag can produce more calories per acre than corn or wheat or soy can ever help to. If you want to know exactly how those numbers work, Mark Shepard's first book, Restoration of Agriculture, he takes 200-acre plots, gives the, like the, the, if you've got the best corn harvest that can be expected, and compares it to a holistic grazing-style mainline key line system, and it gets blown away. Not to mention, you can't live on the corn alone. No matter what you think about corn, if you try to live on nothing but corn, you'll die. I'm not kidding. But you can live on beef alone. Probably not the best choice either, but that system that he's talking about, you can live on everything that comes off of there. And these monocrop systems, any one of them, are nutritionally deficient. But buy your calories, grow your nutrition. And I think that what can happen is, as we do begin to convert some of our grain-based commodity lands into perennial-based regen ag-type operations, you start to end up with grain production the way it should be in islands. So instead of flying over the Midwest and seeing like a patchwork of all these freaking irrigation circles and shit like that, you see all this forest, and then you see this on-contour grain operation because we're going to need grain. We're going to need grain. I, I wish people would eat less of it. I promise you. But we're going to need it to feed livestock. It's inefficient. Not when you do it efficiently. Just because something's inefficient doesn't mean it can't be made efficient. That's how vertical farming became economically viable. It was inefficient. So they kept trying it until they made it efficient. Because the market forces were unforgiving, the efficiency got improved. Because there was no subsidy, the efficiency got improved. Because there was no bailout, the efficiency got improved. That's how efficiency gets better. You don't interfere, you let the people trying keep trying, and they either fail or they succeed. And then things become very, very efficient. So I think that's what we'll end up with. And the reason I think it will happen, maybe not in my lifetime, but the reason I think this is the general direction we will go, I don't think we have a choice. I do not believe that humanity has a choice about this. Unlike the doomsday bullshit of global warming and the oceans are going to rise and Florida's going to be underwater and all this crap and all these predictions that have been made for 30 years now, since 1989, we've had 10 years to act. It's been 30 years, and some bitch, we got 12 years to act. All right? I mean, just unlike that, When there's not enough food to feed people, people will go apeshit and start killing other people. And if we keep doing things the way we are, eventually what we're doing is going to stop working. It's already started to stop working. We have reached the limit of what we can do in a mining operation, and it's time to turn farming into actual farming again. Farming by its very nature should be regenerative. Now, am I saying these technologies like vertical and greenhouse and hydro and all don't have any problems? No, but are the problems significantly less, and what can be done with the refuse? So when we do a hydroponics operation, there's almost nothing left over when it's done the right way. We have to change out your fluid. At some point, yes, but when done properly, that's just fertilizer that can go to perennials. 
somewhere else. And there's not much of that in modern operations that are really good at recycling. There's no dirt. There's nothing to wash. There's no foodborne illnesses. There's no pesticides. There's no herbicides. There's no weeds. There's a lot less of all those things in a greenhouse operation. Now, am I saying we should all go do this? No. Holistic. If what you believe the most in is cows eating grass, ruminating, putting manure on the, on the soil, sequestering carbon, creating a biological soil web, and restoring an ecosystem on a, on a controlled grazing style, which is how the planet ran itself until we screwed it up, I do too, and I think that's what you should do if you can. But I think there's something to be said for having a more holistic understanding of what's available to us so that we can engage in discussions and not write things off. Like I've done with many of the technologies I've talked about today. I have written them off in the past because they didn't make any sense to me. And some parts of them still don't make sense. When I got some British dude with a YouTube channel telling me they're going to be able to grow rice in 2035 inside a building and it's viable, I question it. But when I look at all the projections, all the numbers actually kind of make sense. And I still don't think it's a good idea. I still think it's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life unless you want to do it so you can prove it can be done so you can do it on Mars over the next hundred years when they try to build a civilization on Mars. Okay, I get it there. But we have sun. It doesn't go down to 45 degrees below zero five seconds after the sun goes down like it does on Mars. We have soil, and we can grow rice in a way that builds soil. There are people doing it all over Asia right now. They're doing it poorly, and they're doing it well. There's both kinds out there, and we can do it well. We could take and combine things like rotational grazing and earthworks managed systems and bring livestock and do land conversions right now in places like southern Arkansas, Louisiana, where they're growing massive amounts of rice, and we can grow half the land still in rice. Get not equal yields, but better yields per acre, and produce a shit ton of beef, pork, and chicken. We can do that right now. And build soil growing rice. If there is a grain that can build soil, it's rice. Because rice is basically what? Grass. And grass that grows in flood systems that can be used to catch disposition instead of draining off disposition. If I have corn and I have flooding, I got to put the water somewhere. If I have rice and I have flooding, I use it to keep my rice from getting weeds. And when it gets drier in the year and I drop the levels down, there's a place for the water to go. And if I have a well-developed earthwork system, when I let that water out, it hydrates the whole land and waters my trees and feeds my cows. See? We can do this. So I look at that and think, this is stupid. But if you find some of the things I talked about today a little bit troubling because they're technological solutions to ecological problems, for instance, then I invite you to stay as open to being wrong about it as I am staying open to being wrong about what that British dude said about rice. I really am. Because I believe that it's possible. I still think I'll think it's a bad idea. But if you'd have told me 10 years ago that I would advocate in any way for indoor vertical farming, I would have told you you were crazy. One thing I've learned over the years is to always be open to being wrong. I know sometimes since I'm so passionate about what I believe in, 
And I'm so convicted in my principles. I may come off as a person who you think, that guy never thinks he's wrong. I think I'm possibly wrong at all times. Because it is the only way that I stay open to learning something new. The only way to learn something new is, there's two. One, to be exposed to information you didn't have that somehow, by some miracle, doesn't affect any of your preconceived ideas. So you can learn something totally new and not have to change your beliefs about anything. But most times, you have to learn something you didn't know or find out something you thought you knew isn't right. And then you had to have been wrong somewhere along the way to learn that. If you're an anarchist like I am, 99% of us were not anarchists when we were 15 years old or 20 years old even. We weren't. So you were something else. So if you think you're right now, you had to be wrong then. And if you're truly enlightened, you know you could be wrong now. You've taken a moral position, so you could be logistically incorrect. That's the only way that we can actually evolve ourselves so that we can address these problems. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed this today. I, I, it, it was a discussion that I've been wanting to have, and I've been doing a ton of research so that I could speak with some knowledge about these different technologies. And there's so much more to talk about. I'm sure we will again in the future. Remember, though, if you want to help support this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you're going to buy something this week online, go to tspaz.com first, and whatever you buy, you'll help support us no matter what it is. My item of the day for you today is Lakanto Monk Fruit Sweetener. I brought this to you late last year. I'm bringing it back around today. As you guys know, I went keto. I lost a ton of weight, about 40 pounds. And some have been asking, so I stopped doing the YouTube videos about it. I basically went to a holding pattern from the workshop through the holidays till right now. I weigh about within two pounds of where I did when the workshop happened. I've not really gained any weight, and I've not lost any weight. Uh, through the holidays, I had more alcoholic beverages than normal. I've kept my... My, my carbohydrates relatively low. I've had a few spoiled days where I've had some candy or cookies or something like that during the holidays. And now I'm back onto it militant. And one way I stay militant is products like Lakanto's Monk Fruit Sweetener. I like some sweetness in my coffee. I don't like a lot. I don't like it to be candy coffee. I like some sweetness. The Golden, which is the brown sugar substitute, Lakanto Monk Fruit Sweetener, it tastes exactly like brown sugar. It's amazing. Um, and the Classic, which is a white sugar substitute, It tastes like white sugar. There's most of the stuff that is uh, erythritol based has this kind of cooling uh, menthol like thing in the background. It's the best I've found overall, but it has a little bit of a weird aftertaste. The monk fruit and the erythritol together, it just kind of cancels itself out. And you know, I put maybe a half a teaspoon of the golden in a cup, big cup of coffee. And it has a little bit of that caramel from the golden. And, man, it's just great. And anything you want to make, I'm going to be bringing you guys this week a leather little product. It's a little waffle iron. And I make something called chaffles. And I make chaffles with bacon in them, and I use them for buns to eat a hamburger. <laughs> It's pretty damn good. Well, another thing you can do with some monk fruit sweetener and some cocoa powder, you can make chocolate waffles. And I'm not going to say they taste just like a chocolate waffle, but they taste like delicious chocolateness. That's what this stuff lets you do. It, it, of all the sweeteners I've found, it is the, the, the least amount of aftertaste or funny taste or whatever, and the closest thing to the original, and it has zero, zero, zero effect on your blood sugar. A lot of other so-called zero-calorie sweeteners, uh-uh. 
in my write-up, I have a link. You can watch a video where a couple, every day for nine days, tried a different sweetener and measured with a glucose meter. And monk fruit and erythritol both had zero. Xylitol was about half as much as regular sugar, and it's toxic to dogs. Stay away from xylitol, guys. I just I don't like to bring anything in my home that could hurt my animals because something could get spilled, and you know. And I know chocolate's bad for them and all, but you know, if you don't have to do it, don't do it. And if you're going to try to stay keto, this is the way. Lakanto monk fruit sweetener. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today. We're in ELO week. Is Evil Woman. And if you're either hearing the song in your head right now, you're going, I've never heard that song. This is another one of those electric light orchestra, older group, been around forever. That, you know, the, the heyday of boogie and classic rock all kind of mashed together. And they did both of them really, really well. Um, a lot of younger folks today don't know who they are and what have you, but they've got a lot of music that you can be sure you don't know. But when you hear, Evil woman. I know I can't do it. You're going to be like, well, yeah, I've heard that. Uh, for me, music like this takes me back to being a kid in the 70s and 80s and like, you know, hitting on girls at a skating rink, right? That's how, that's how far back this kind of music goes for me. What this song's about, though, is the fact that a woman can be a destructive force. Now, look, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Men can be a destructive force. But that's not what this song's about, okay? If you're too woke for this, I'm sorry. You probably wouldn't have made it through the show if you were. Um, but women can be incredibly destructive forces. And the, re the main reason women can be a destructive force is men are stupid. When it comes to women, men are stupid. They will let women get away with shit in relationships that if it was something, you know, analogous, because there's things a woman does that a guy's not going to do with a guy unless they're that way, right? So, but if a, if a, if a buddy, or a close friend did some of the shit that they let a woman get away with, they would disown that some bitch immediately. The main reason men end up with evil women is they let themselves be controlled because they're thinking wrong or from the wrong place. I'll let that be that. Anyway, the song's cool. The music's cool. It's a great song. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life and find good stuff or even if it don't. 